Doug was already nervous before the accident. There's not really any traffic rules in Nigeria. The driver was going uncomfortably fast, swerving around other cars, pedestrians, goats, potholes big enough to wreck your car. And then it happened. Swerving around another car, they found a woman crossing the street in front of them. The brakes screeched, and then there was a sickening thump. As the dust settled, they see people lining both sides of the street staring at them, as some more quick-thinking people are already running over. I am informed it is official police advice that in Nigeria and many other less developed countries, that if you hit a pedestrian, you should immediately drive off and leave the scene. Otherwise, bystanders have a tendency to immediately enact mob justice and beat the driver to death. Now, I wasn't there. I heard about it shortly after from Doug, so I don't know exactly how tense things became, but I imagine it must have been pretty scary for everyone involved. The woman was all right eventually, but she was in the hospital for some days afterwards, and the organization had to cover all of her medical expenses, because if she were to die, the driver would be charged with murder. As it is, the driver was kept in jail until it was determined if she would make it or not. Welcome to episode two of this podcast. You may recall we left off last time just after opening ceremonies of my first project in Nigeria in 2012 with the country director of the organization informing me about the incident with Doug's team. At this point, after opening ceremonies, I met several people who would be involved with the project whom I should introduce. There's always a local host organization with Twin Rock, the US-based organizer, partners with. In this case, it was a local development organization whose name was a massive acronym that spells out PASRUDES, PASRUDES, in like nine letters. No idea what that stood for. This organization was run by a woman in her mid-30s named Yinka. She was a lovely woman. She later went on to speak on women's issues at the United Nations and some other big conferences. And very sadly, she died just, I believe, last year, which is 2015. And this is only, you know, within three years of the project taking place. So uh, it's quite sad. She uh, clearly had a bright future, and I, I don't exactly know what, what happened to her, but it was uh, abruptly ended. There were also three young men around my age who were helping organize it all, whom I've been friends with ever since. The first was Hattrick. That's not Patrick, as you, like I, probably initially thought. It's Hattrick as in a trick that involves a hat. I think it's some kind of cricket reference, but that is his given name, his first name. Uh, in the years since, Hattrick has painted some very, very lovely paintings, and he runs his own nonprofit now called Womb, which is World Organizers Movers. I don't know. It's W-O-M-B. I always like to ask Patrick how his uh, how his womb is. Another young man was named Wale, spelled like whale, but pronounced Wale. And the third was my interpreter, Deo. Um, so you'll hear more about these three guys uh, later. The training took place in the local government compound of Abaddon, Abaddon Southwest Government, which was a series of buildings around a red dirt square in which weeds grew out of a construction vehicle, like a grader was just sitting there with weeds growing out of it. I had about 30 students belonging to the local beekeeping association. We met under a semi-enclosed area 
on the edge of the compound, surrounded by the sounds of the bustling city. I was a bit intimidated as to how to start this training. I'd been a beekeeper for over a decade, but I'd never put on a training course before. I had been told it wasn't actually in the budget to visit bee sites, so the expectation that was put in front of me was that I would lecture about bees for like 11 days. I just remember sitting there at the first session looking at the expectant beekeepers, feeling like this immense amount of time was stretching in front of me to fill. Lots of expectations that I would somehow talk for 11 days and it would be worth everyone's time. So to kind of fill time, we began with introductions and they went around introducing themselves. All the beekeepers were of course local people, I think about 80% men, so there's, there's some women there too. They all had a handful of what they called modern beehives, which are top bar hives, so they didn't have any of the modern, modern frame hives. And when I began to speak, so the members spoke English, I spoke English, so I began to speak in English, and of course they all started quickly looking bewildered and mumbling to each other, and you know, you hear the suburb and stop, what's wrong? I was informed they couldn't understand me. So I tried again, speaking slowly and clearly, trying to use simple words and over-enunciate. But they still couldn't understand me. So Dayo had to step in and translate my English into their English. Now, for example, I just got Dayo himself to uh, record for me a sort of sample translation of what was might have been one of the first things I said, the explanation of the three different castes of bees. So here is him recreating today what he might have said in 2012. Now three types of bees day. The first one are the queen. We be the ogafatapata for the bee colony. The second type, they be the workers. The workers then be female. And then they do all the work for the bee colony. And then plenty pass too about 99% of them. The third type be the drones. The drones then be male, and they know they do any work. The only work we then they do not just to sleep with the queen, make she take the fertilized. So as you can see, it's understandable. I could understand what he was saying. You could probably understand what he was saying. But the farmers, they could understand him saying that, but they could not understand me. My theory is that because English is the only language all Nigerians have in common, but it's also used alongside local languages always, so I think a lot of local variation has been inserted into the language and a lot of local words have entered as slang and they're just kind of thrown in there. Whereas other countries where English is learned in school and kind of only trotted out when they need to speak to an English speaker, or obviously countries where you only speak English, it tends to not get as, as off the wall, uh, as, as deviated as it does in Nigeria. It's, it's local English is not, not understandable to me anyway. So anyway, so I begin speaking. And I hate the word lecture. I mean, it was kind of, I don't know what other word to use to describe, you know, lecture sessions. Lecture sounds so pedantic. But I'd start on a topic, I'd take questions as we went and let them kind of direct the discussions. It's kind of like discussions. It turns out I can actually talk about bees for days and days in this manner. I probably collectively spoke for over 24 hours. 
like like you add up all the time I spoke like I can speak apparently for a very very long time about bees for subsequent projects I've had the benefit of powerpoints and visual aids I've prepared for but for this project this was my first project I had no idea what I was getting into I didn't know if there'd be equipment for this so I had no powerpoint no I think I had my laptop and I passed it around to show some pictures, maybe, but like, by and large, there were no visual aids. It wasn't a chalkboard. There was nothing. It's just me talking, trying to describe things. And uh, looking back on it now, I just shake my head. I'm like, I can't believe this wasn't another disaster. Fortunately, as it happens, they found a budget to go visit the yards. And this would turn out to be a repeating pattern for most future projects. I show up. I think the organizers have it in their head. We're having a training program. And the organizers aren't necessarily beekeepers, so they think training, they think classrooms, they plan a classroom thing. But beekeepers, me, them, all beekeepers, typically are not a crowd of people that want to sit and learn in a classroom. I think generally around the world, we're all pretty anxious to, to get amongst it, to get our hands into a hive. And so every, every subsequent project, you start out with a little bit of expectation from the organizers that it'll all be classroom and we are quickly able to uh, kind of mutiny and say no we are going to be hives so I, I think and, and it's been the pattern ever since the by and large we'll usually start with kind of discussion off of the first few hours in the morning and then go out to the bee yards or some days we'll just be if it's going to a further bee yard or what we'll just sometimes have an entire day out in the, amongst the bees um, so the way I'm going to organize this podcast episode, I'm going to speak mainly about the classroom things, and then I will talk about the field visits with the bees, and then um, the kind of candle making and other things, and we'll, we'll see where that puts us time-wise. All right. So, story time. Back at the government, the government compound. Going back to the very beginning, you know, it wasn't terribly long before I had to use the bathroom, as one does. So during a break, I asked one of the organizers, um, you know, where's the bathroom? And they say, just a minute, and they hurry off. And I'm like, all right, well, okay, <laughs> I don't need to go really bad. Because they disappeared for like 10 minutes. I'm sitting there like twiddling my fingers. And finally, they come back. Okay, we're, we're, we're set. Come with me. I'm like, all right, this is okay. And so we go into the, into the government building, walk around, go to the, the chairman's office. The chairman has this huge office, huge desk in one corner with like flags behind it, and then kind of two big leather couches and kind of the, in front of that and kind of this, this waiting thing. And he's got this like permanent entourage of guys in shiny suits with sunglasses who just kind of act like his entourage and hang out. So they're all like sitting on those couches all day. I think that's all. All they do. And the person guiding me leads me. There's a door right behind the desk, unlocks the door with a key they have and indicates just around the corner there is the chairman's bathroom. So finally, I'm like, oh, it's all clear to me. The chairman was the only one with a Western style toilet. So they had to, had to secure the key for me. Okay, sure. So I go in there and do my business and then the toilet will not flush. And so, so all of a sudden I'm panicked, like super important chairman of like a quarter of this city, which is one of the biggest in Africa, like important guy, has important guys in his entourage hanging out. Like this was a big deal letting me use his bathroom. And now I have left an embarrassing load in his toilet and broken it. <gasps> Panic. 
So, <laughs> as one does, I, um, you know, it's it's uh, I lift lift the lid off the tank on the toilet, look down there and see that the the um, plungy thing is unhooked. So I just latch that up, and sure enough, now it will flush. So I flush it, and it flushes, and that's all good. And then I then I return, you know. And then I find out later that I don't know someone mentions or something that. The expectation is you fill a bucket with water from the sink and you dump it down the toilet bowl to flush the toilet. And so I realized then that they didn't know how to fix the toilet. You know, I feel like, you know, if the toilet's not flushing, a first kind of go-to for all of us that are familiar with flush toilets is see if that thing has become unlatched in the tank. But, you know, they don't, this was the only flush toilet there. They were not familiar with that. The chairman, chairman's, all the, all the, Chairman's horses and all the chairman's men. Okay, this is not working. Though the plumbers, they they couldn't they couldn't figure this out. So I had repaired the chairman's a toilet, <laughs> which I thought was was kind of funny. So yes. So another 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 thing on kind of general life in the area is the most common food was called amala. It was these these dough balls in spicy sauce with a bit of meat, usually chicken or beef. We had this for lunch every day. And then on one of the weekend days, we weren't working on the weekends, Yinka and Atrick, I think Atrick was like her cousin or something, they invited me over to her place to show me how to make a mala and, and all this. And as a special treat, instead of the beef or chicken that we keep having, they were like, we're going to have fish amala to change it up. At which point I'm like, um, okay. <laughs> like, I actually really really dislike fish. Uh, usually it's not terribly uncommon someone invites me over to dinner and I get there and oh, it's a salmon. And usually it's not a problem to, to eat it and smile and, and pretend it was all right. And I feel like that's usually better than saying, oh, this thing you made, I don't want to eat it. So I just come, okay, I'll, I'll grin and bear it. But the thing is, Amala has this like gelatinous texture and mackerel is, is the fish they chose to use, and mackerel is a very fishy fish. And so I was trying to eat this amala, and like my diaphragm was involuntarily heaving to, to expel what I was trying to eat. And so kind of very quickly, I decided I need to abort this, this attempt to politely eat this because it will be much more awkward and rude when I spew this all over the table. So I had to abort mission. So, so that was a thing that happened. <laughs> On another occasion, uh, Atric, Wale, and Dio invited me to go to a Western-style restaurant in Ibadan that actually had pizza. And uh, so we all went there. And then I actually have some audio here where I interviewed them about that experience. Had pizza for the first time uh, two days ago. What did you think of the pizza at uh, Actually, the food is very strange to me because it's quite unusual. I don't eat that kind of food. I'm familiar with rice, beans, and normal local food in Nigeria. But eating that food for the first time is like, wow, I'm having another interesting thing. You know, guess another interesting thing in my country. Uh -huh. so, it's very funny. I didn't like it, did you, Adrian? Mm, I must like it because I went to my friend from California. So I have to adapt because we've given him our local food here. Uh -huh. And he ate as well. So I have no choice. I have to like it. Uh -huh. Okay. 
you didn't finish it, did you? I think I, I saw some on your plate when you were done. You know, I was eating it for the first time, and uh -huh. it's not that easy for me to eat it as I used to eat my awanoma food in Nigeria. Oh, okay. So I think another time I will eat more than that. No, okay. Um, have you had a hamburger before? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you like a hamburger? Mm, I don't normally take foreign food. I, don't, oh, okay. I, I prefer our local food. Uh, Amala? Not really Amala. Oh, so that's right. You like the Yaba, is it? Yeah, yeah. I like Yaba. Yeah. Oh, I prefer pounded yam. Pounded yam. Yeah. I haven't had pounded yam yet. Someone needs to give me some pounded yam. I guess you should get it before you go. Maybe tonight. I need to find some yams and pound them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, okay. Alright, we're recording now. The battery died a moment ago, and now we get a new battery. So what do you think of Pizza Wale? Pizza. Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it, yeah, it's, it's nice. It's nice. You, you liked it? It's tasty, yeah. Uh, had you had pizza before? No, no, that was actually my first time. Oh. You eat it again? I'm thinking of going back. Maybe? So I, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe we'll go together. Oh, okay. Hey, yeah, I, I thought it was funny that you uh, guys never had pizza before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're not making just of me. It's all you know, no. No, you, I hope you're not going to show it to your friends. Oh, yeah. That you see somebody that's never taken pizza before? But that's okay, you don't even know what Amala is. But you're not taking Amala before. Yeah, we're all the same thing. We're not taking Amala So we are the same thing. That's a typical If you have not taken pizza before, they have not taken Amala before. Okay, I'm going to turn this off before I run out of battery again. So, I apologize for the all the background noise in that recording that was as i said that was at the time right there in the um in the government building so you can hear the background noise there but yes that's wale as you can see he, he has to turn around and ask atrick what what the pizza even was again and then they point out that you know while they are not familiar with uh, pizza you guys will not be familiar with amala so we're all even now I know my friends would be very cross with me if I portray them as believing in all the superstitious beliefs of the villagers, but I was really quite fascinated by what they told me about the shamans and native animism and black magic. While the overwhelming amount of the population is either Christian or Muslim, and according to Wikipedia, only 0.8% are listed as other, it is still quite common to see kind of fetish offerings in the forest. You'll see like a little like cracked eggs or chicken feet hanging from a tree or something like that, which are which are these uh, offerings they, they leave in the forest for good luck or various black magic related purposes. And and just anytime anyone would tell me about the kind of firmly held local beliefs in supernatural properties of places or objects. I recall hearing about turtles that could tell the future, or there was a chain attached to a cliff that, if pulled, would summon an ancient hero. Only someone had yanked his chain a hundred years ago to see if it worked, and the hero had appeared and told the chain puller that, hey, because you pulled my chain disbelievingly, screw you guys, I'm not coming back anymore, so the chain no longer works. On the second Nigeria project, I remember we were coming up on a village and people really kind of steered me. They, they, I remember we all saw this big crowd in the middle and there was, you know, drums and dancing and people wearing wearing these like full full body costumes. And I was really excited. And as soon as the people I was with saw what was going on, they kind of bundled me off and, and pushed me in the other direction and, and we avoided it. 
And I really don't know if it was because the villagers didn't want me there or if it was because my handlers kind of felt like it was embarrassing of their culture. Because I kind of got that impression a lot of people I was working with kind of didn't want to talk about local beliefs because they felt like as good Christians, they shouldn't talk about it. And it was an embarrassing thing for outsiders to see. However, I personally found it absolutely fascinating and interesting. And I really kind of wish I I had had more opportunities to observe things like that. So I guess the bees will have to wait entirely until next time. But in the meantime, while I'm doing this, Doug was doing a similar thing in uh, his location. And so he's, I'm imagining in the exact same kind of situation, lecturing in a semi-outdoor setting with a road nearby when all of a sudden he hears a really loud bang and he dives under the table. It sounds like something, just big crashing bang noise just beside him, just on the road. And he sees a convoy of military trucks rushing by. And that's going to be the cliffhanger for this week. So until next time.